0: From the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God.
1: Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Genesis. We're back in the beginning and we are reading chapter three. It's on page two of your Bibles. Hear now the word of God for you who are the people of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, "'Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Our second text is from Paul's correspondence with the church in Rome, the third chapter, verses 21 to 26, page 144, if you'd like to follow along in the New Testament portion of your pew Bible. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous, and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, columnist and author David Brooks uh, said not too long ago that many people hunger for meaning. Many people want to understand the meaning of life, the meaning of faith, the meaning of their existence. What is more, uh, they want to understand the good. They want to know what the good is. They want to know how to do it. He said, many hunger for meaning and goodness, but they also lack, we also lack, a spiritual vocabulary, a spiritual language to think things through. The season of Lent invites us, I think, to claim a particular vocabulary. It's a liturgical and theological language that is spoken in this season with a unique accent and a particular rhythm when compared to other liturgical seasons in the life of the church, it is more introspective. It is certainly more somber, more melancholy as we seek to follow Jesus on a hard road, on a journey that will ultimately end on a hill called the Skull on a Roman cross. And so Lent, I think, Provides us with a lexicon. Lent provides us with a glossary of terms that helps us to speak and helps us to understand this journey. And so, through this Latin sermon series, what we're going to do is take each week as an opportunity to focus on one single word from this glossary. One single word each week from this lexicon Sin. Repentance, self denial, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. These will be the words, thinking of Brooks now, these will be the words that I hope in some way will satisfy our hunger. In some ways, will satisfy that, that longing for meaning and goodness, to understand the meaning and to understand the goodness of the cross and the journey that we are on. But even as we embark on this journey, I think we must name a challenge that faces our 21st century context. You see, the language of religion, the language of faith, the language of the spiritual life is becoming a lost art. Jonathan Merritt uh, is a great author and speaker Uh, He'll actually be one of our speakers in our Theoed series coming up this September. And and Jonathan has written a a book entitled, Learning to Speak God from Scratch. The subtitle is, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. And and Merritt's basic premise is this. That we're living in an age where sacred speech and sacred vocabulary is far less frequent, far less utilized in our day-to-day interactions, in our day-to-day conversations than has been before. He's actually done a lot of statistical uh, research and, and surveys in their area of, of the sociology of religion, trying to tap in why to the reason why this is. And what he's come up with, he's, he's come up with three big identifiers of why people have lost the ability or no longer have the desire to talk God in public. He says they're either indifferent, they're either ignorant, or they simply want to avoid the conversation altogether. And he breaks down the population through statistical analysis with each one of these categories. And so at first, where he talks about those who are indifferent, he refers to the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. We've talked about those folks before. These are folks who are the fastest-growing religious segment in the country. These are folks who do not affiliate with any religious uh, community. And these folks possess an indifference, obviously, toward religious talk, towards spiritual vocabulary. And it represents, in, in Merritt's research, about a quarter of the population. And, and this makes all the sense in the world, right? Merritt puts it plainly. He says, people don't talk about what they don't care about. So there's a loss of of theological and spiritual vocabulary in the public space and the public square because there's a quarter of the population who doesn't affiliate and so why would they utilize language of a community that they don't belong to so that's number 1 number 2 he talks about the population and this represents about 17% who feel ill equipped to talk about spiritual and religious matters. I suspect that many of us sort of fall into that category. We just feel like we are incompetent to talk about faith in public, that we don't have the skills, that we don't have the right definitions, that we don't have enough knowledge to carry on these conversations. And finally, the largest group in the population represents about 60%. They avoid God talk altogether because they feel it's a taboo subject in the public space, in the public square. They don't want to offend anyone. They don't want to create unnecessary conflict knowing that there are some words that trigger certain people and certain communities, and so they want to avoid that language altogether because they don't want to create conflict. Or they feel as if in our secular age it is inappropriate to speak this way In public, it's reserved for the the private religious spheres, a room like this one. It's okay to have this vocabulary, but not outside of these walls. Or perhaps that the language of faith has become so co opted by those who have political ambitions, or by those who are seeking power, or even just celebrity culture in general, athletes and artists alike who use words, religious words, that we're pretty sure don't mean what we think they think they mean. And so people, because of this territory, this, this unsteadied ground, we, we don't want to walk there. We don't want to speak there. And after reading Merritt's book this week, I became keenly aware of the challenges that are set before us in a sermon series like this one. Because God talk is waning. God talk is waning. Spiritual vocabularies are becoming more and more obsolete. And that's precisely why I think we need this sermon series. Because of this fact, we we need this series because we recognize fundamentally that words matter. Words matter. Words have the power to create. They have the power to destroy. Words have the power to include. They have the power to exclude. Just ask our United Methodist brothers and sisters this week how much power their words actually have. Our words have power to bring peace, and they have power to sow division. Words can tell the truth, and words can lie, and words and language and speech is how human beings create culture. Words, language, and speech is how we understand ourselves. It's how we actually assign meaning and value to our lives and to the life of the world. And above all else, for our purposes here, our language, our words, in some way, help us to understand the deep mystery who is God. That's what our words do. Episcopal priest Barbara Brown Taylor put it like this, God could have made us stone creatures. God could have made us tree creatures. God could have made us sea creatures or winged creatures. But God made us speech creatures instead. Human beings made in God's own likeness, which is to say that we are capable of joining God in the work of creation— by speaking things into being ourselves. Part of what it means to be made in the image of God is to be someone who speaks, speaks meaning and goodness into existence. That's why, to put it as clear as I can, I think that's why we need sermon series like these. As we journey to the cross the deep mystery that is the cross, we need a vocabulary to help us make sense of what it means. We need a language of faith that helps us understand why Jesus went to the cross, why he was killed, why he was executed, and what that has to do with you, and what it has to do with me, and what it has to do with the life of the world. That's why I think we need to learn to speak Lent. We need to learn to speak Lent. And so we begin this sermon series with everybody's favorite word, sin. And again, even as I speak that word, even, if, even as it rolls off my, my tongue and out of my lips, right, there are some more problems we have to address, cultural challenges, if we're going to talk about sin. And for now, I just want to lift up two of those challenges, First and foremost, sin gets a lot of negative press, doesn't it? Right? I mean, sin gets a lot of negative attribution. When you think of sin, for some of you, some of you think of sin and it conjures up perhaps this caricature preacher who stands in a pulpit like this one, spewing fire and brimstone at their congregation, condemning everyone to that place that's very hot and very far away from God. Because they are sinners. So often we attribute sin with the negative. And second, and I'd like to go a little bit deeper on this one, sin seems to be a moving target. Sin seems to be a moving target. Sin seems to be very difficult to pin down. Right? Which is interesting because the Greek and the Latin word for sin literally means to be off the mark or off target. So not only is sin off us being off the mark or off target, but it seems as if the target is constantly moving. Because as we trace the pages of religious and moral history, we recognize that some actions and some attitudes, some beliefs and behaviors that were once deemed to be sin back then are no longer sin. And things that were okay, like slavery and the oppression of women, are no longer okay. We deem those to be sin. Sin seems to be a moving target. Or how about this? What constitutes sin in one community Maybe something we celebrate in another community. Ann Farrell is a folklore researcher at the University of Western Kentucky, and, and she has this great little illustration, I think, that, and it's a bit mundane but, and comical, but I think it proves the point that I'm trying to make here. Dr. Farrell has this keen academic interest uh, in charting the decline of the tobacco industry in Kentucky and paralleling that with the increase in bourbon production in Kentucky as well. I mean, some people have great jobs, right? So she has spent a good part of her life researching this. And one of the things that she offers in her research is that you can actually trace the decline of tobacco production and the increase in distilleries with the notion of sin, And what was deemed sinful once that's no longer deemed sinful now, and what's deemed sinful now that wasn't deemed sinful then? So she interviewed this tobacco farmer named Noel Wise. And I'm paraphrasing him here. He said, I grew up uh, going to Sunday school. I grew up going to church. And when I was a youngster, I remember there was this elder who took a part-time job at one of these bourbon distilleries. And the other elders, who were all tobacco farmers we were debating whether or not he could still be an elder because the distillery industry was sinful. A generation later, Noel Wise said, the shoe's on the other foot. It's exactly the opposite. You can drink your bourbon. Don't get drunk. But you can drink your bourbon. But now, he said, it's a sin to smoke. Sin's a moving target. As various Christian communities, they take up the Scriptures. Look, they're faithful. Some of you may be thinking, you know, well, just what the Bible says, that's what's sin and what's not sin. Well, people have interpreted the Scriptures in a multitude and plurality of ways. And so people take up the Scriptures. They take up prayer. They take up their tradition. And they begin to discern what's good and what's not good. And in recognition of this, I think, for many of us, especially if you kind of affiliate with a community like ours, we're hesitant, right? Because we're so aware of the plurality of Christian witness about what's sin and what's not sin, and we wonder who really gets to define it. Who gets to define who's a sinner and who's not? And so by default, because this question is so nebulous I think so many of us, we keep quiet. We're reluctant to engage because sin seems to be a moving target, with the exception, of course, of the big ones, right? Murder and theft. And usually we rely on the law to tell us those things, right? What's deemed to be a sin is where you break the law or where you get caught breaking the law. And even in that sphere, in those systems, consequences for quote-unquote sin vary based on race, based on socioeconomic status. Even in these structures that we revere, they're still broken, and sin is a moving target. So how do we talk about sin, given the words bad publicity and the reality that sin seems to be a moving target and so hard to pin down? And in this inquiry, I think we would do well to turn to the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 in particular, where he writes in a very matter-of-fact way. He says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Greek word that we translate in our version uh, to the word or phrase fall short is, is actually better translated, most scholars agree to this, better translated with the word lack. So it's better read, for all have sinned and lack the glory of God. They lack the glory of God. And so what, what Paul's trying to clue us in on is that somehow sin creates a void of glory, of God's glory in our lives. But what is the glory of God? That's a big concept, and scholars have tried to, to figure it out. And one idea that really resonates with me is the idea that God's glory relates to both God's eternal existence, but also to God's incorruptibility, that God cannot be corrupted. I want to explain it this way. God is eternal. God is the beginning and the end. What is more, God cannot be corrupted. God cannot be anything else but love. God cannot be anything else but justice. God cannot be anything else but righteousness. And all of this constitutes God's glory. And so for Paul to say that we are all sinners, then we lack this glory in some way. And since the Garden of Eden, this has been our void. This has been our burden. Unlike God, we are mortal. Unlike God, we have a beginning and we have an end. And if you were here on Wednesday night, on Ash Wednesday... You know, not a lot of people want to turn out on Ash Wednesday because it provides a hard truth that we're all going to die, that we're mortal, that we have an end. God is incorruptible, yet we are corruptible. We are corrupted. We're not who we ought to be, and we don't always act the way we ought to act. And for Paul, he just lays this blanket claim on everybody. All, not some, not a few, All have sinned, which makes you and me and every human being a sinner. But what does that mean? What does it mean that I'm a sinner? And I'll close with this. Sinners are mortals. Sinners are going to die. Sinners' attitudes and actions are corrupted and corruptible. Sinners don't meet the mark of God's love. They don't meet the mark of God's justice. They don't meet the mark of God's righteousness. And this corruptibility ultimately leads to death. And I'm not just talking about physiological or biological death. I'm talking about spiritual death. I'm talking about estrangement from God estrangement from one another, estrangement from the core of our identity of who we are as beloved children of God. And this is precisely why claiming the language of sin is so important in the season of Lent, because it prepares us to receive once again how God is going to overcome the estrangement. We have to be able to speak sin if we're going to fully understand the meaning and the depth of the cross and God's act of grace that Paul spells out in verse 24 and 25 when he says, All are now justified. Did you catch that? All have sinned, but all are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. Friends, we cannot begin to fathom the meaning surrounding the work of God on the cross unless we can speak sin. Sinners like you and me are destined to end. We are destined to live corrupted lives on this side of eternity without an intervention from God. And this road, this journey prepares us to receive that intervention. But it makes no sense unless we can talk about sin. And so we speak sin during this Lenten season. As we prepare ourselves to receive once more God's intervention, we speak sin to remind us of what we lack and to remind us of God's free gift in two very important ways. First, the gift of everlasting life so that we don't end, but also the gift on this side of eternity, the gift of an ethical life, the gift to live the good life which is modeled after the way of Jesus. So may we be proficient in speaking sin so we may be ready to receive the gift where God intervenes and overcomes our estrangement. Let us pray. Lord, we give you thanks that we have a vocabulary of faith that helps shape meaning in this season, lays forth what the good life looks like. We'd ask, O Lord, that we would be ever prepared to receive the gifts of grace that you want to pour out. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to invite the ushers forward now as we move to our time of offering and wait on the choir as they uh, bring us a gift of music. I meant clarinet, not choir, thank you.